So Money episode 528, Christy Shen, Canada's youngest retiree. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. Welcome back. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. As you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, that I and a lot of listeners, we're all obsessed here with young retirees on So Money. And so when I read about today's guest, I booked her immediately. Christy Shen is here, and she believes to be Canada's youngest retiree, calling it quits from her nine to five, along with her husband, Bryce, at just 31 years old. And today they're traveling the world with a million dollars in the bank, which is earning interest. So we're going to talk about the financial workings, the inner financial workings of their early retirement strategy. How much did they save? How much were they earning? How they invested their money and how much they're really living off of now. Also, they have no plans to ever make more money, which I was surprised about. I mean, you're in your 30s, you have a long life ahead of you, a million dollars is only going to get you so far, but you'll be interested to hear their strategy. Here's Christy Shen. Christy Shen, welcome to So Money, early retiree. I think you might even be a record early retiree. Um, Yeah, as far as I know, I'm the youngest retiree in Canada. How do you know that? Um, because the last person that said they're their youngest retiree is Derek Foster, and he retired at the age of 34, I believe. So, yeah. All right. So this begs the question, what does retirement mean to you? I mean, um, obviously, this is a ever-changing concept, and we've interviewed many people on this show who are self-entitled uh, retirees you know, in their 30s and their 40s, and they're still kind of working, but they've found a way to just sort of work for themselves. How do you how do you ultimately define retirement for yourself and also your married, Br- Bryce, right? Yes, that's my husband. Um, so the way I define retirement now is retirement is actually retiring from the nine to five. I mean, there's a lot of like what Money Mustache calls like the internet retirement police who will like come and say, oh, you, you got to be sitting on a beach and uh, that's the only <laughs> way you can retire. If you do anything, like if you just touch the keyboard or do anything, then you're not retired. That is not really the true definitive uh, definition of retirement anymore. The way that I define it is retiring from your nine to five. So it means you have, you don't need to work anymore because the passive income from your portfolio pays for your living expenses. So you can actually choose to work or not to work at that point. Was this always a goal for you? How were, how were you inspired to pursue this path? <laughs> actually, no, it, it, it actually came about um, the opposite of what I was originally trying to do, which was buy a house. Uh, so back in 2012, um, me and Bryce were actually looking for a house in Toronto because that was the responsible thing to do. And everybody else was buying a house. So we were thinking, okay, we have to buy a house. And um, that's part of the reason why we saved 500,000 back then in 2012, because we knew that the housing market in Toronto was crazy. It's one of the most expensive housing markets in Canada. So um, we try to save as much money as possible. Uh, But at that point, we started looking around at houses. And then this one house on our block, um, it looked really dilapidated. Um, There were some really scary things, sketchy things going on in that house. Like one day, we walked by and we found like six feet uh, deep holes in the front yard. 
and I really didn't know what was going on. I was like, okay, I'm just going to walk really fast past this house and pretend I didn't see it. So uh, what was really surprising was that that house actually went up for sale and sold for 500000 just in that condition. And then a real estate developer moved in, slapped some paint on it, and then resold it for 800000 within two months. At that point, I started to realize that, like, wait a minute, this, this is a scam. Like this is, people are not buying houses logically anymore. They're just trying to get into the housing market and they don't care whether it's been renovated properly or whether the house price makes any sense anymore. People are just getting into the market and not thinking anymore. At that point, I, I, I just walked away from it. I was like, okay, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be um, buying a house that I don't know what's going on with the foundation, competing with other people for offers and then being stuck in my job working to pay, pay off the mortgage. And at that point, I actually discovered uh, Mr. Money Mustache, who you've actually interviewed before. And I, I really love that interview. That was awesome. And, um, so from, from that, I, I checked out his blog. I checked out, um, Jim Collins blog who talks about investing. And then combined with that, we, we hatched this plan to retire by the age of 31 because we realized from calculating our expenses, if we build a $1 million portfolio, the, um, the dividend, uh, the, the past passive income from that portfolio will be enough to cover our expenses. And by the 4% rule, we can actually retire at that point. And so take us back to what you were doing. What were your occupations? How much were you making? I'm looking at your website right now at millennial-revolution.com. You actually go through you kind of all your budgeting and your categorical yeah. spending, your net worth throughout this process. I'm noticing your savings rates were well above and beyond the average American savings rate and probably Canadian savings rate, but like 52%, 59% saving. What were you guys making? How, what were your jobs? And so just give us some more color about like who, what, what was going on as you were doing this? Right. So uh, we're both computer engineers. Uh, one of the advantages we had was that we went to um, a university that actually had a co-op program. So one of the things we were able to do was work and go to school at the same time. It stretched out our, our time frame from four years to five years. But as a result of co-op, we were able to have no student loans by the time we graduated. And when we graduated, we had two years of experience and we were able to get into the jobs that we already worked at during co-op. So as a result, we made approximately $60,000 to start after taxes. So that gave us a head start. Um, we also uh, were relatively frugal, not insanely frugal, because we managed to go on at least two expensive vacation a, a year. Um, but we, we did manage to find a one-bedroom um, uh, one bedroom apartment on the second floor of a townhouse in a area in Toronto that was less expensive. It's um, about 30-minute subway ride from downtown. So that, that made our rent only $850 a month, which is much lower than what our um, friends were paying. So that helped a lot in terms of savings. Um, and as well, I uh, took I, as you see from the blog, initially we were going out to eat all the time. And then we, when we started tracking, we started realizing this is a lot of money wasted just going out and drinking and, and clubbing all the time. Why don't we just start cooking but it's more? so much so fun. That made, yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> when you're, when, once, once you get used to it, it's not so much fun. In the beginning, it is quite a lot right. of fun. Well, okay. So you made some decent money coming right out of college because of your college's co-op program. You didn't have student loans. That's that's like leaps and bounds ahead of most millennials. Um, you saved more than half of your income. You found affordable rent. You lived relatively frugally, although you said you didn't. You did splurge on the things that mattered to you, like vacations. Okay. So then, when did you reach that million bucks by thirty-one? 
Yes. So um, in 2012, once we decided we weren't going to go down the path of buying a house, we were going to invest instead. Um, at that point, we continued saving and we continued investing. And so part of the investment gains and the savings propelled us to um, the million dollar portfolio by the end of 2014, at which point I was 31. But surely you have to be making more money, right? Because a million dollars sounds like a lot on paper and it is, but for the next 50 years that you're going to be alive, <laughs> I don't know if that 4% rule is going to hold up. So that's one of the things that we, um, yeah, that's a lot of people have been questioning about the 4%. So some people have been able to drop their savings, drop their spending to 3%, which gives you a 100% success rate. What we did was actually we created um, a backup plan. So plan A, B, C. Uh, so plan A is that we structured our portfolio so that it is a 60-40 split, 60 equities, 40 fixed income. So that portfolio actually gives us a dividend income of approximately 3.4-3.5%. So if because we're able to live under under that um, dividend income, we don't ever have to withdraw from the portfolio at all during downtimes. Uh, that allows us to have a 100% success rate. That's plan A. Plan B, we also keep a uh, cash cushion outside the portfolio covering three to five years of living expenses so that if there is a down market and we can actually live off that income as well. And then plan C is because we once we started traveling, I realized that traveling is so much cheaper than people actually realize. Like we were able to travel the world on 40,000 Canadian dollars a year. So as a result, um, we are actually able to move to cheaper places that is not crazy expensive Toronto. So location independence counts a lot as well. That's our plan C is just to move somewhere less expensive and be able to have like a safe withdrawal rate of even 2%. So this is very much not just a financial shift, but it's a lifestyle shift for those listening and thinking, oh, I want to do this. What are some of the things that you have to be aware of once you quote unquote retire? Like what are the things that you find are necessary to have in place and also to be comfortable with from a lifestyle perspective? Like what do you have to give up? I think flexibility is a big part of it. I don't think it's so much giving up. It's more like being flexible and then also prioritizing the things that matter and then not caring about the things that don't matter. So what I mean by that is like after we retired, um, not being fixed to the fact that like I have to live in Toronto or I have to live in San Francisco or somewhere really expensive. Like I'm okay because we're no longer tied to a job. We don't have to stay in expensive cities, we can move to a less expensive place. And the fact that we travel the world and it's actually less expensive than being in Toronto, I find that a much better option. Um, I also found that uh, it actually, people don't realize how much money they're paying to work. Like it's ridiculous, like how much money you're paying on commuting to work every day, how much money you have to pay for buying like professional clothing and dry cleaning. And um, for people who have kids, how much money they have to pay for uh, day daycare and childcare. So one of the things that people won't re don't realize until after they retire is that their costs go down because all those costs that are associated with working completely disappear. Right. So now what do your parents think? I know that your mom was very insistent on you becoming a homeowner. <laughs> what do they think of your lifestyle? Okay, so uh, there was some butting heads in the beginning because my mom was really, and, and my dad too, because coming from an Asian background, like for our culture, it's like sacrilegious to not buy a house. Like that is the responsible thing to do. You must buy a house and it's it's going to give you wealth and that is the Asian belief. So when I told my mom that, okay, I'm retired now and uh, I'm financially independent, she's like, so what? You don't have a house. Where's the house? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> So there was some butting heads there, but I am happy to report uh, now that we've been retired for about a year and a half now, and uh, we travel the world on $40,000. 
And we actually have more money. Like our, we have like $27,000 more now than when we left. So now that my parents have seen this, that I'm happy doing the things that I love, I'm traveling the world and I have more money than when I left, they're, they're actually quite uh, relieved <laughs> and not as terrified as they were before. So my dad actually told me the other day, like, I'm really proud of you. And I was like, whoa, okay, coming from an Asian parent, like that is big. It, as an Asian parent, you don't tell your parents, kids that you're proud of them. Right. Like, otherwise, they're going to stop growing. I read Tiger Mom. Trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was really big for me. I was like, really? Wow, I really hit the jackpot that time. <laughs> so you're subsisting on 40000 Canadian dollars more or less a year. Um, <laughs> what if your family expands? Do you have plans for a family, like having kids, life evolves, maybe you're going to need to take care of your parents one day, you'll need to pull out more money. Have you thought about these, uh, like the sort of the swings in your life and the financial implications? Yeah. Um, so actually a lot of people have asked, is this possible with kids, right? Once you have kids, the costs are going to go up. So we actually met another couple. Um, so, uh, Jeremy and Winnie who right at gocurrycracker.com. Yep. They've been on we the met show. Them in, Th- in Thailand. Oh, my yeah. So like the fact that they can travel the, the world with a child is, is pretty amazing. And uh, the funny thing is Jeremy wrote a post recently about how um, how uh, his kid is actually like making him money because he has the child care credit and that kids don't actually cost as much money as people think. Um, it, it really it really is this belief that kids are expensive. But in reality, it's parents that make them expensive. So if we have kids, I don't expect it to really increase our costs by that much. And um, the idea that uh, like the, the idea that you're never going to be able to make any money again after you retire is you know, there's always going to be chances to make side income, um, as well as the fact that uh, I found out this statistic recently that the average Canadian household retiree household has an average income of 42,000 a year and they're doing just fine. Like this is the average household. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's really more than enough. You're so young though, Christy, I have to say like, yes, it's cool to travel now, but are you going to just travel for the next 35 years, 40, 50 years? I mean, what's, have you thought, I mean, I I get the sense that you're a planner. (laughs) So (laughs) what's the plan really in terms of keeping yourself busy and growing? Because life is obviously not just about working at a nine to five, but when you retire, it's this idea that there's a new chapter in your life. But most people arrive there when they're in their 60s. You've arrived in your 30s. So how many more, what are the different chapters going to look like for you? Um, We plan to always incorporate traveling as part of our lifestyle. We could actually end up with like a home base later on. If I decide to settle down, I can move to a less expensive place in Canada. We could move to Southeast Asia. There's actually a lot of uh, options, right? So um, another thing I found out that uh, some days are actually busier after retirement than when we were working because we have all these opportunities, um, just like talking to journalists, um, like planning to write a book, uh, coding for a nonprofit. So there's actually a lot of opportunities that come around when you don't expect it after you retire. So I really I really see a lot of opportunity going forward. And I see that there's nothing that's like we could end up staying in one place. We could end up traveling it's like the world is our oyster. We can decide to do whatever it is that we want to do at that point. It helps that you have a partner that's going toe-to-toe with you on this. Bryce, did you guys ever have d- differences over opinions of how to accomplish this? and Or are you both of the same financial ilk? 
I think it helped a lot that we were both rowing in the same direction. Like when I, when I told them, okay, the housing thing, it just does not appeal to me. And like, it seems like it's a scam. It seems like I have to work so many years for this. He was really on board. He was like, that really makes sense. I, I think freedom is a lot more important than having things and having a house. So we were very aligned in that, um, on that message. So that definitely helps a lot. Um, I think we didn't really have too many agreements. I guess the only agreement every now and then is like, okay, b- back then when we were uh, going out and clubbing, he's like oh, spending a lot of money on alcohol. And I was like, can we drink at home? And then that was kind of like, mm, is that, do we really want to do that? But then eventually he came around and uh, we, we cooked more and stayed uh, at home more. And it really make it, made a big difference and it didn't really change our lifestyle at all. So I wonder we didn't how, really have to. Yeah, yeah, t- certainly. I wonder though how much easier and not to say that what you've done is easy but how much relatively faster you can become a re- early retiree in Canada versus the US because of two big things that Canadians get for free and I know you pay for it through your taxes but there's free education and free healthcare and maybe some other free things that I don't know about which is why everyone wants to move to where you live uh-huh. um, how much did that support your ability to accomplish this and would do you think you would have been able to do it as early as you did if you were living in New York or anywhere in the U.S.? Well, we've had, we have talked to other retirees like Justin from, um, from uh, Root of Good. And he said that, um, so for tuition, I think for him, he said that he went to a state school. So it wasn't actually as expensive as we thought it was. It was actually pretty comparable to our tuition. And he also, I think he also worked and took on uh, jobs during university. So there are options as well if you're in the States. Uh, I think for insurance, he was using Obamacare to um, pay for his insurance needs. I'm not sure going forward what's going to change with that, but he he definitely had options as an American as well. It wasn't just only Canadians can do this. And the same with Money Mustache. He's also American and living in Colorado. So uh, I I think we have the same opportunities. it, It might be a bit easier because we have healthcare, but I think from the education point of view, uh, a lot of people who went to state schools didn't have crazy expensive uh, debt or tuition as well. Yeah. I just read about this young senior, high school senior who got into all of the Ivies, including Stanford, and is instead going to a state school in Alabama because that's where he's getting a free ride. He got into the honors program. I think that's such a great story, right? I, I totally agree. I think that whole Ivy League thing is kind of losing its shine because it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you want to get that job and you don't want to be saddled with debt looking for it, right? Just because you have an Ivy League university doesn't mean you're going to get a high paying job. So I, I totally, that's way more practical. And I totally agree with that line of thinking. Yeah, I'm gonna, trying to get him on the show because <laughs> I really want to. Yeah. I want to spread awesome. that wisdom. Yeah. I think it's brilliant. I I, um, I got into some really nice colleges too, but at the end of the day, it's like you got college is an investment, right? You have to be smart mm-hmm. about it and you gotta tr- have a return on investment. I mean, yeah. the Stanford alumni network is definitely priceless, <laughs> yeah. but you can meet those people in life just through your own you know, your own networking, your own putting yourself out there. And um, some people go to Stanford and Harvard and they don't use those resources. So it's really just about the individual. And this guy in particular who declined all these fabulous offers and went to the uh, state school in Alabama, he knows he wants to go to graduate school, which will be another expense. So he's being smart in that way too. He's like, I'm not going to front load all my student loans now. And then I have, oops, I have to go to grad school too and take on more loans. And then you're just totally effed. (laughs) 
That totally makes sense. Absolutely. And what we found in our field of um, software is that I met people who didn't even go to university. They just got a uh, like two year community college degree and they're now making six figures because the companies that they're working for don't care what university they're from or whether they have a university degree. They just care about the fact that they can code. And that person yeah. can really coach circles around people who have amazing degrees. So it really is more about the experience at the end of the day rather than your actual degree. If you had to work again, what would you do? Um, probably write because that's one of my favorite things to do right now, like writing mm-hmm. for the blog. And we've been able to meet all these like-minded people through the community that we've developed. So I, I would definitely, I would definitely write. So maybe like freelance, just keep doing what I'm doing. Freelance writing, probably. It does help too, that you have had this community. Many of the folks you talked about have been on the show for the same reason that, you know, you're on the show is that you've achieved millions or I should say a million so far in your thirties. Um, what have you learned not to do maybe from that same community? Some advice that you decided not to take? Um, there's a couple of things. Sometimes we disagree on like uh, the portfolio. I think as Canadians, we tend to be a lot more risk adverse. So there are a lot of FI, FRs going like 90-10 on their portfolio, 90 equities. And I'm like, okay, that's way too cowboy for me. Like, I'm going to stick with my 60-40. I need to be able to live on the income in case uh, on the like reliable income in case the stock market crashes. So there's a few dis- disagreements on there. Um, generally, I think as Canadians, we're less risk adverse, but other than that, yeah, I, I think we're pretty well aligned. It's really nice to meet people who just get it right. Like you don't have to explain it. Like back when I was working, people were like, what is this? Like, I don't, like, I didn't really tell anybody until after I left. And even then they're like, I don't get that. I can't believe that you did this. Like, this is so crazy. I just don't understand. But then when you actually are in a room full of FIRs, like every time we met another financial, we meet another financial independent person, we're like Skyping with them. And then somehow four hours go by and we're like, did we just chat for four hours? Holy crap. Like, what did we even talk about? Holy crap. That's insane. So it's been amazing meeting all these like-minded people that we would never have met while we were working. Is there any desire to make more money? No, like not 2 really. Million, 3 million, 4 million. I only ask because nope. while you are comfortable with the money that you have and the income that you have, there's a lot of power, yeah. that be- beautiful power that comes in being able to earn more in, in terms of being able to give back and have a legacy. And I don't know. Um, has that ever been part of the conversation with Bryce? Um, we haven't really been thinking about monetization. I mean, if it happens, we probably just donate a lot of it because I think once you are really comfortable with uh, enough, like more doesn't really make any sense. Like if I had $10 million, like what am I, would I do anything different? No, I, I'm perfectly happy the way I am right now. So uh, giving back would be a big part of it, but I don't, I'm not going to stress myself out trying to earn money because I don't need it. Right. All right. Let's, uh, lo- let's learn a little bit more about you, Christy, as a child. Like I want to know, because I think that the, I love the hearing the stories about like growing up in the Asian household and the dichotomy of like, you know, you kind of breaking from that and uh, the tension in the, in, during that period of not having the traditional things like a home. What was life like growing up in terms of how money was introduced to you growing up uh, with your parents? Uh, so 
the funny thing is when I was growing up in China, I didn't even know I was poor because like in the neighborhood, everybody was poor. So we, we were all just like hanging out, doing our thing. And we didn't have a lot of money, but we were all really happy. It wasn't until like we immigrated to Canada for a better life that I realized I was poor because the other kids were like, oh my God, your clothes, they're like from thrift stores and your mom cuts your hair, you're poor. And I'm like, really? I have four walls. I have clean air. I have water that doesn't give me stomach worms. Like this is the best thing ever. Like I've won the lottery. I'm not poor. Uh, so I think right from the beginning, I, I may have had a different perspective from other people because of growing up in China. Um, and my parents were never ashamed of being poor or they never made me feel bad or feel sad. They were just kind of like, be grateful for what you have. Like you have so much more than the other kids. You have so much more than when we grew up. And I think they instilled that kind of um, creativity and uh, resilience in me because I, I realized, okay, we don't have money. How do I become creative? And, and like, let's say they don't have enough money to buy, to, to pay for cable. Like I'm going to go to the library because it's free. And there's no shame in doing that because now I'm expanding my mind and I'm doing all these different things without having to use money to solve my problems. So they always instilled this belief in me that this is a strength rather than a weakness. And you develop character with adversity rather than kind of succumb to it. So I'm quite grateful for them <laughs> for teaching me these lessons growing up. And I think growing up in China gave me that perspective that was different from everybody else. You said it, perspective is really <laughs> priceless. I mean, to be able to be, you know, in elementary school, middle school, and to be able to brush off the fact that your friends are teasing you because of your home, you know, your homegrown haircut, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, I was like, well, I can totally rock this. There's nothing wrong with aw, this. That's so cute. <laughs> well, yeah. it's the no doubt that you are who you are today. That's a huge, strong foundation that your parents gave you. Yeah, for sure. So what's wrong with the world today? I mean, like, let's, let's through your lens, like, how can it, what's everyone doing wrong then? Financially, um, I, financially, there's a lot of yeah. wrong in the world. <laughs> Let's <laughs> focus like, on the money. <laughs> um, I, I feel like um, people are not tracking the money, and that's it's not it's not because people are they don't know what they're doing. It's or like you know they're dumb or anything like that. It's just people are not tracking it. They don't know where it's going. At least that's what I found with a lot of my friends, and um, some friends who have actually made like who made more money than us while working. They're kind of looking at us and going like, how come how come you're financially independent? Like how come I don't have any money. Where did my money go? Like I worked longer than you and I got paid more. And then when you actually look into it to see where the money went, it all went into the house. Like they were paying ridiculous amounts of money, maintaining the house into property taxes, into insurance. And none of that actually adds to the equity of the house. It just disappears. Right. So I think the biggest uh, financial mistake someone can make is not tracking it. And I know it's, it's kind of a pain in the ass to dig around and find out where all the money went. But once you actually track things like this helped us a lot when we were um, trying to keep within the 40,000 budget for a year for traveling around the world, it made things easier because I tracked everything. So if, if, even if you blow the budget once or twice, it's not a big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. I made mistakes too. But being able to track it allows you to see, hey, look, I'm going in the wrong direction. It's not going towards my financial goal. So then you just move back towards the right path and then you're good to go. So I think tracking is absolutely paramount. That's one of the things that um, would help people a lot financially. And perhaps not going with the herd, you know, this concept of, well, everyone's buying right. a house, so I should cool. too. Everyone's investing yep. in blah, 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 so I should too. Um, everyone's yep. going to college and taking out $100,000 in loans. I guess that's the norm. So exactly. you, yeah, so it sounds like you and Bryce have also the, uh, I dare say, courage um, to say no to certain things that have been that you feel pressure to go towards. Yeah, just definitely like the, the FOMO thing will drive you nuts. <laughs> like the fear of missing out 
Oh my God, I got to do this because everybody else is doing this. Oh my God, I got to do this. If you actually step back and then look at the math and look at the logic behind it, rather than just get caught up with the emotion, I think that's what we're able to do. I think engineering may have helped us because we actually stepped back and looked at the numbers and said, wait, this doesn't make any sense. People are just making decisions, not because it's a good investment, but because they're getting emotionally pulled into that to say like, oh no, I'm going to, I'm going to miss out. What if other people are in the market? I'm not in the housing market. I'm going to miss out. So it's that separation from like the FOMO, which is based on feelings and rather than fact, and then stepping up and doing the math and realizing, wait, I don't want to do what everyone else is doing. Maybe they're not right. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean it's correct. Yeah, you got to be able to rein in your emotions. And then you said it, you know, the fact that you guys are engineers, I don't think it's a coincidence, the fact that you've been able to arrive (laughs) at this status so early in life. Mr. Money Mustache, also, I believe an engineer in his, when he was working, um, others have been consultants, worked in science and kind of these like very black or white fields that I think Mm -hmm. parlays to living your life also with a very rational lens. I think that helps a lot. Uh, I've noticed this engineering tre- trend through the FIRs as well. Uh, Jeremy was a software engineer. I believe Justin was also in engineering. I think maybe part of the reason is because as engineers, like we have the potential to earn a lot of money, but then we don't really care about the aesthetics of it. Like we don't care about showing off with a nice car or like some professions, you kind of have to have that look. Like maybe if you're in finance, you're making lots of money, but then you have to, you know, dress a certain way or look a certain way for your clients. I think for engineers, it's just like, how can I optimize? And that's the only thing I care about. Just optimize. And then all the other like aesthetics doesn't matter. I think that that is probably the key and why there's so many engineers who are financially independent. Well, you're totally right. My pa- my dad, for example, engineer all his life. And um, my mom likes the fancier things, if you couldn't guess. And my dad doesn't really care. Um, so throughout their marriage, you know, they've had nice cars and he refuses to like drive them to work. <laughs> <laughs> he drives like my mom drives a Mercedes. My dad drives a Volkswagen. <laughs> oh, that's a very engineering. Um, he's like, it's really practical. It gets great mileage. It's comfortable. Like that's what I need. My mom wants to bling. Really yeah. So yeah. go figure. Absolutely. That's very engineering mindset. <laughs> so who are your role models? I drive a lot of my inspiration from Steve Jobs. The funny thing is, I think that he gave the best piece of advice, but also the worst piece of advice. Like his best piece of advice is like, don't follow the status quo. Don't be drugged dragged down by dogma, like things that everything around you is created by people that are no smarter than you or I. I absolutely believe that, like fighting the status quo, not doing following the herd and just doing things because everybody else is saying you're doing that. That's so like speaks to me. That message absolutely speaks to me. Um, The only other piece of advice that I don't agree with is just like follow your passion, follow your passion. Yeah. The whole follow passion mantra, like I'm more you know, it's, it's not necessarily just follow your passion because he himself initially was like, he wanted to be some yoga teacher, or spiritual leader, and then he ended up being an entrepreneur. So sometimes you end up like finding, like you end up building your passion through building your skills. It's not necessarily just blindly going out looking for your passion. So I really like Steve Jobs in that he says, don't follow the status quo, you know, challenge everything, um, like fight the status quo, which I really like, but then follow your passion and kind of more like the practical type of like, you will get the passion once you get the skills. Yeah. Maybe it's not so much following, but embracing your passions, passions. I think so. Yeah. Embracing. Yeah, exactly. And I think he ended so, up marrying a yoga instructor. I don't know. I don't remember how, how it worked out in his love yeah, life. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But, uh, yeah. So I, I really believe that, um, But the fact that he had that courage to challenge the status quo is is really speaks to me. So I I really like that about him. 
And not to be able, not to be fearful of failure. That's what I learned from Steve Jobs because he's failed mm-hmm. big. Mm-hmm. He's won big. He's also failed big. Oh my big. God. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's a terrifying thing. Yeah. Christy, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your behind the scenes of how you became Canada's youngest early retiree. That's uh, quite a feat and hope that your travels are fruitful and that um, you'll come back when you have updates. Thank you so much for having me. Had a great time. Thanks so much to early retiree Christy Shen for joining us on the show. Her website is millennial-revolution.com. She's also on Twitter at firecracker underscore REV. If you missed any of this, want to download the transcript or grab the audio, go to so somanypodcast.com. And when you're there, of course, click on Ask Farnoosh or leave me a voicemail for the Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Thanks for tuning in. Hope your day is so money. So money.